Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mullinger Meets Canadians is brought to you by Opportunities New Brunswick. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. In this very special episode, I'm meeting a man that I've admired for a very long time. It's no exaggeration to call him New Brunswick Royalty. The much-loved host of CBC's flagship news show The National, Ian Hanamansing was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, but grew up in Sackville, New Brunswick. He graduated with BA Honours in Political Science and Sociology from Mount Allison University, where he was valedictorian, and he also has a law degree from Dalhousie University in Halifax. While at university, Hannah Mansing won six national university debating and public speaking championships. He began his broadcasting career at CKDH Radio in Amherst, then worked at radio stations in Moncton and Halifax before joining CBC in 1986. His assignment took him to Toronto the following year and eventually to Vancouver, where he's now based. In his new book, Pandemic Spotlight, Canadian Doctors at the Front of the COVID-19 Fight, Hannah Mansing profiles Canadian infectious disease doctors who stepped up to guide the nation through its worst medical crisis in a century. There are very few silver linings in the COVID storm, but one of them is how these doctors put science front and centre and became public symbols of trust and hope. As they prepare to return to their private careers, they respond to Hannah Mansing's invitation to reflect on lessons learned and their concerns about the next pandemic. Hannah Mansing donated all of his royalties from the book to the University of BC's Centre for Health Education Scholarship. I can't wait to learn what he loves most about New Brunswick, his tips for a successful life in journalism, and what the past two years have taught him professionally, personally and emotionally. So without further ado, in this very special episode of Mullinger Meets Canadians, let's meet one of the greatest ever New Brunswickers, Mr. Ian Hanamansing. Hi, Ian. It's genuinely an honor to meet you, my friend. Well, that's fantastic. Really nice to be doing this. How are you? I'm doing great. It is such an honor to meet you. I'm a huge fan of your work. And the way that you inform, educate and engage with your viewers is really quite unique. I just wondered, do you remember when you first became aware of what a journalist or broadcaster was? And when did you realize that it was something you wanted to do? What a journalist or broadcaster was. I mean, I don't really remember when that was, but a couple of very distinct memories I do have kind of related to that are, first of all, growing up in New Brunswick when I was, I think, in junior high. And you got to imagine a world very, very far away, not in terms of geography, but in terms of time. Like when I was in junior high, we didn't have cable in our house, cable TV, very few radio stations. And so at nighttime in this small town in New Brunswick, when it got dark, we could pick up AM stations from far away. And so there I was sitting in Sackville at, 
you know, six o'clock in the evening in the wintertime and listening to WHDH from Boston and WCBS from New York. And it was magical. And I, I used to think there's somebody sitting in a studio right now with a microphone in front of his face, because at the time, most of the people on air were men. And he has no idea that here I am listening in my house so far away. So that's one big memory. I mean, it really did excite me about radio. And I thought to myself, maybe one day I could be in that industry. The other thing is when we finally did get cable TV, it was in the early 80s. And Peter Jennings had just become the anchor of World News Tonight on ABC in the United States. And I I just watched him every night. I, I, I couldn't believe how good he was. I ended up in the privacy of my home kind of imitating him doing pretend television newscasts. And, uh, you know, years later, I had an opportunity actually to meet him in New York in his office and to tell him that you never know whose lives you touch and who's watching when you're broadcasting. But I was one of those people. So, yeah, I would say those two things really were things that inspired me to get into both the broadcasting side of it and the journalism side of it. That's so beautiful. And that feeling of touching people kind of, you know, nationally or globally, do you still have that kind of romantic view of journalism and what you do? And do you feel a kind of a pressure when you're up there knowing that there's so many people from all different walks of life learning from what you're saying, but also being touched and inspired by it? Yeah, I mean, I love it. I love my business. I was talking to somebody the other day and they were asking me, have you thought about retiring? And I haven't because I, I do very much enjoy what I do. As, as we speak right now, I've just had a, a week off, a week of vacation. And so didn't do my regular job last week. And I'm looking forward to getting back on the air again this week. I mean, that, that's the way I feel after all those years. In terms of the pressure, not so much. I remember when I first went to the CBC in Toronto, I'd been working at CBC Halifax. I moved to Toronto for a year. This is a long, long time ago and was filling in on a noon hour national newscast. I was pretty young at the time and it felt very comfortable to do. But then I remember Peter Mansbridge came by, who even then was the anchor of the national news and, uh, you know, an iconic figure again, even though this was many years ago. And he said, oh, you did such a great job yesterday. And so obviously I felt good. And he said, you know, it's amazing when you think about how many people are out there watching. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. And so the very next time, I did that newscast, this noon hour newscast filling in the next day. I was just starting to become very aware of the fact that there were a lot of people out there and we're live, you know, we're live to this day without a delay. So if you cough, if you um, mix up a word in an embarrassing way, there's no filter, right? People are picking that up right away. I don't think about it most of the time, it, very rarely. And it's the kind of thing that if you do start thinking about it too much, I think it could be a real problem. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it must be an intrinsic empathy within people that drives them to journalism, because you can't come into a business that involves relating to people, engaging people, touching people, and, and indeed kind of getting them to tell their stories to you. Was that something that you were aware of as a child, that you were interested in other people's stories, and indeed had this kind of you know, empathetic nature, whereby you felt other people's pain and joy and kindness? I didn't think of it in those terms. I hope that I have those qualities. I think if I do have those qualities, I have them uh, in a more abundant way now, you know, after all these years being older uh, than I did when I was 20. I think when I was 20 and in my 30s in the business, I 
I loved the excitement of it. I loved the responsibility of it. I was kind of fearless in terms of, you know, wanting to go in and ask the tough question. Um, And now I'm still fearless about asking the tough question, but I think I'm also much more aware of how that question lands. And so I think to myself more, if it's important, if I feel that somebody has done something wrong or needs to be held accountable, then I have no problem asking that question in a sort of sharp way. You know, now for the last year or so, I've been filling in on on Cross Country Checkup, a call-in mm-hmm. show on mm-hmm. CBC Radio. And I hear two pieces of feedback from a lot of people. Like when you start hearing similar things that many different people say independently, you think, okay, there's something to that. One is that people say to me, people who know me, say it's the one time on the air that they're hearing the real me. And and part of that is because you're on the air live on a radio show for two hours and it's unscripted and you get a chance to to be yourself, right? So there's that. But the other thing is people talk about that I'm patient, that I let people say what they're going to say, that they're surprised sometimes that that I am as, as patient as I am with some of the people. Like So my feeling is, is that if somebody says something that is incorrect, I'll challenge them. Mm-hmm. If it's uh, incorrect in a potentially damaging way, like they say something that's not true about COVID mm-hmm. or vaccines, then I'll push a little harder. Mm-hmm. But if it's not correct and it's more benign, then I think there needs to be room to let somebody make their point, to make them feel like there is a place, like it's a call-in show and we want you to call in. And I I was very much involved in debating in university and I did well at it and I loved it. And I I loved, you know, that whole, the cut and thrust of debate and jumping on people and sort of being able to like just isolate the one thing they said that was wrong. It was fun. It was a game, you know? And then sometimes I was, sometimes, lots of times, too many (laughs) times, I was like that in real life. Um, and you know, that was me in my, in my twenties. And again, to an extent in my thirties, like, you know, you said something wrong and here's what you said. Oh, you don't think it's wrong. Well, here's why it's wrong. I, I wouldn't be that way now. I would definitely give people a lot more room, even in personal conversations and definitely on the air on cross country checkup. Nice. That's fascinating. And, and I mean, I mean, let people dig their own graves, right? If they want to well, say Well, yeah. And also yeah. make sure that people feel like we need to hear different points of view, right? right. And, and as I say, again, if it's wrong, and especially if it's wrong in a potentially corrosive or, or damaging way, then that does need to be corrected for sure. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, I mean, yeah, people, we need to hear different points of view. I mean, and obviously you're kind of recognized and admired and indeed adored nationally. But in New Brunswick, there's a whole different level <laughs> of, of love for you here. Um, I've only been living here eight years, but yours was one of the very first names that I heard when I moved here and have been, you know, an, an avid fan since and watch you as, as often as possible. Do you feel a different sense of love and belonging when you come back to New Brunswick and when you walk around and the things that people say to you when they come up to you? Yeah, and I'm thrilled by it. And I was just in New Brunswick last week and, you know, I walked into a, a restaurant just off the highway and, and somebody from Moncton said they were probably in their 60s and they, they talked to me about my work. But then the one of them said, did you work at CKDH? And CKDH is a little radio station in Amherst. And yeah, I worked there, except I worked there in the summer of 1979 and then part time during the school year in 7980. And this right. guy remembers that all these years later. Nice. And and he was genuinely asking. He just wanted to double check if that was true or not. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I love that. And, you know, the thing is, is that 
New Brunswick is one of the most important parts of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, because of the way I look, people would sometimes say, and I'm not the only person who's been in this situation, who would say, where are you from? And I would right. say, Sackville. And they would mm-hmm. say, but where are you really from? And they didn't mean it unkindly. They really didn't. Like, right. you know, if you looked like me in the 60s and 70s, it would be unusual to be from Sackville, New Brunswick, but that's really where I was from. Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that now, all these years later, people ask without a trace of irony, where are you from? And I say New Brunswick and they go, oh yeah, okay. You know, so, and then the other thing, I lived in New Brunswick from the time my parents moved back there. They went to university there, went back to Trinidad where they're from. I was born and then they moved back to New Brunswick when I was 11 months old. So from 11 months until when I graduated from undergrad, so almost 22 years old, I I was in New Brunswick. So that is very much who I am, you know, a guy that grew up in Sackville, who I was saying to somebody the other day, when I finally had enough money to buy a car, um, I assumed I was going to buy a Trans Am because that's what kids did, uh, Pontiac Trans Am, uh, you know, and fortunately, another friend stepped in and said, no, you're going to get a different car. So that was, that was good. Good to have good friends. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it uh, I love the fact that there are people who from New Brunswick who know that that's where I came from and uh and where i still have ties my parents are still in new brunswick i have lots of friends there and uh and i i do feel a very strong connection to it it's beautiful and it comes across in in interviews i've seen you do and i and i know there's so much uh passion for the place and it's 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 a wonderful thing as you say that there is this uh connection that people feel here whereby uh, and they're always trying to find the connection and the connection could be you know a, a tenuous one i mean i had someone approach me a few weeks ago telling me that that we that we were we had a connection and i was thinking oh this is going to be a, a relative of, of my wife's but it turned out that it was my wife's uh uncle had changed this person's septic tank 13 years ago that was our link and i'm like great let's bring it in we are absolutely we yeah. are linked. well and that's uh, the other thing i mean my parents were school teachers and i often do run into people whose connection to me is through them I, I remember in calgary one time having somebody come up to me and say are you and i thought they were going to say you know the guy on tv but it was like are you harvey hannah mansing's uh, son and it's like yeah and i thought oh, that's really cool and they had been taught by my dad however many years before 30 years before something like that and they still thought of him and when they saw me they weren't 100 percent sure that I was related to their former teacher, but they remembered him. So yeah, so um, lots of uh, connections, some stronger than others, but uh, all, as you say, all appreciated. Yeah, it's lovely. What are your kind of memories of growing up in New Brunswick? And and what are the things that you think are different and unique about this place? Uh, It's interesting. I mean, you know, part of it is not just growing up in New Brunswick, but growing up in a particular town in New Brunswick, right? right? And so very small, and yet we had and still have a university there, right? Mount Allison. And so you had this really interesting dichotomy between the experience of being in a place where there are families who have been in Sackville for generations. And then at the same time, you have people from the university who have come from all over the world. So some of my friends, when I was in high school, who had parents who were professors, one family from the UK, one family originally from Greece, just a wide uh, kind of variety of people. So that was kind of neat. And then it's a town where 
music is really important. Mount Allison has a music school and, and a lot of people have been through there and then stayed in Sackville. And so I played piano and saxophone growing up and lots of people were involved in music. And then I was surrounded in high school, you know, the public high school just off the Trans-Canada Tantramar by some incredibly smart people. And I graduated in 1979. And in my circle of friends, one guy ended up becoming a lawyer and then an executive, very senior executive with General Motors. One friend of mine became a professor of public health at Columbia University and uh, other universities. And now is at McGill, I think. Another became an advertising executive in Germany and is uh, fluent in, in German and, and French, as well as obviously English. One was a a musician with the Toronto Symphony and others with the string quartet in Victoria. These were the people who were in my classes. And at no point did we ever feel like, even though the world seemed so far away, mm. it never occurred to us that we couldn't be part of the world. And we couldn't, you know, we always felt we could succeed. Um, mm. And, you know, those people I mentioned to you, none of them had parents who were prominent in those particular fields. In other words, right. it wasn't a case of, oh, I'll get my son or daughter to join the family business. All of them are people who kind of blazed their own trail. And, yeah. um, and, and so, yeah, so that's the environment I was in. So I, I had the best, I think, honestly, it sounds like such a cliche to say, but I got to tell you, the best of, of all worlds to be in a small town where you know everybody, you know, yeah. and it's safe, and at the same time, where you felt like you could go anywhere and succeed. And, you know, and the thing is, is that the hallmark view of the world is created by a greeting card company that now makes Christmas movies. And obviously, the real world is more complicated than that. And obviously, you have situations where in a town, there are people who, I mean, they're incredible. Like, I, I, here's the thing. After all these years, I still choose to go back to Sackville as much as I can and love it, right? So, I mean, that tells you what you need to know. Having said that, you know, were there people who would be unkind? Yes. Would there be people who would uh, be mean? Yes. But I think that's true in the city. It's true in a town. It's true in Manitoba. It's true in New Brunswick. Um, so, uh, but on balance, yeah, I, say, I think you need to go no further than the, like last week I was heading to, Halifax to do an interview for work. That's why I went mm. to the Maritimes. But I made a point of extending my trip on both ends to go back to Sackville. So as I say, that kind of gives you a sense. I mean, because my parents are there, but also yeah. because I love the town. That's beautiful. I mean, and I feel the same way. I first visited uh, New Brunswick in the year 2000 and it became my happy place that I wanted to come every year. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned the kind of the hallmark view of the world, which is this kind of stereotype whereby, I mean, the the, the classic plot line when, you know, the girl from New York uh, gets stuck in a small town and everyone's backwards and, and, you know, has no ambition. And yet, conversely, and again, I don't know if this is if this is all small towns and that if it's completely a myth everywhere, but certainly in New Brunswick, I feel like there is this inherent ambition. People are very globally minded. They're not close 
closed off just because they live, for example, in a rural space. They are fully aware of and well-read, well-educated. But also there is this belief system. I feel it possibly in the educational system here, but possibly just in the people and through the hardworking nature, this feeling of anything is possible, that you can do anything. And I mean, the example that you just gave of all of those school friends, if someone made a movie about a group of school friends growing up in a small town and they all went off to do those things, and as you say, without any family connections or personal favors just through grind people would say oh well that's just a fantasy but but you see it all over New Brunswick I mean is there is it something in the water here is it something possibly does it stem from an idea that when you grow up in or indeed live in a smaller place that actually it does instill a kind of um, just a desire to work hard I don't know like I, I wish I knew. I, I I don't know. There is that kind of X factor, and and you know there there are people listening who may have a different experience in a different town in New Brunswick, or people listening from outside New Brunswick who would say, oh, you know, I would use that to describe you know my little town in in Ontario as well. I don't know. There was there was an X factor there, but you know one of the things I hear sometimes from young journalism students or people aspiring to be in journalism is that they're reluctant to do it or they didn't do it because there wasn't a role model near them, you know, or they didn't see somebody who looked like them in the media, particularly for people who are, uh, you know, people of color, let's say, and they go, well, you know, and I have people now who say, well, I see you and I I feel like, you know, that, that tells me it's possible. It never occurred to me in the, you know, 70s and 80s that it wasn't possible. Like, you know, I, I mean, I told to an extent, like Peter Jennings was a role model. You know, he doesn't look, I don't look like him. But again, where I was, to your point, none of us in that group ever felt like we couldn't achieve what we wanted to achieve. And when I said to people I wanted to be in radio and television, at first they were a little surprised because I could have said I wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor, and at least they'd understand what that takes right. and and to be in radio and television in that town at that time seemed very far away but at no point did anybody think well you know you're not going to have a successful life coming from this place because uh, we just assumed we would once you kind of realized that this is what you wanted to do it was certainly something that you were interested in pursuing what was the path into studying and then indeed working in the field yeah. So, uh, you know, again, in junior high and starting high school, I, I was just in love with radio and didn't know what the path would be. And back then there weren't really many journalism or broadcasting schools to go to. And then when I was in grade 10, I went to a debating high school debating tournament. It was the first tournament I ever went to, uh, the provincials in uh, Woodstock, New Brunswick. And, uh, and I met a guy who was in grade 11 who was the smoothest talking guy I had ever met to that point. <laughs> he was the incoming student council president at St. John High. Uh, he would be in his grade 12 year. He placed second in the tournament, the provincials, and his name is Steve Murphy, um, the longtime <laughs> right. anchor at CTV in Halifax. And That's at that right. point, he was working at uh, CFBC, a radio station in St. John. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming back from that tournament and I just, I, I couldn't stop talking about this guy and saying to my friends, you will not believe how smooth this guy is, what a great talker he is, and he's working in radio. And so for the first time, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm beginning to see what that path is going to be. And there's a little radio station in Amherst, CKDH, or just down the highway from Sackville. And I kept thinking, okay, somehow I've got to get the word to them that I, I want to work there. 
And so when I was graduating from high school, there was a local reporter for the weekly newspaper, the Tribune, Wally Sears, who would do a story about people who are graduating. And he asked me, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And very strategically, my answer was, I want to work in radio, because I know he was a stringer for the radio station as well. And he said, just like I hoped he would, well, you know, I know the, the people at the radio station, CKDH, you know, maybe you should send them a tape. And I'm nice. like, oh, sure, maybe I should. <laughs> so I, I sent them a tape. And then a guy who is still in Amherst, who still is involved now with community radio there, Jeff DeGans, I went in and did the audition for him. And he hired me. They Every summer, they used to hire two summer students. And he hired me. And that first job at CKDH in the summer right after grade 12, you know, there's a direct connection between that and every other broadcasting job I've had since then. I got a call while I was working at CKDH to work at a radio station in Moncton, CKCW, and so on and so on and so on. So I never did get back to Jeff DeGans for many, many years. And I realized I, I need to. And again, you know, like the connecting to your questions about the town of Sackville, there's an arts wall in Sackville where there are some posters of people who have been involved in the arts. And I was added to that list. So there was also a Mount A professor at the same time. So the two of us were put on the arts wall. And there was an event in Sackville where, I guess, an induction event. So in that room, there were Mount Allison professors who were there because there was a professor involved, but some of them were my professors. High school teachers of mine were there. And Jeff DeGans from the radio station came in and sort of gave the dedication. And I finally had a chance to thank him. And, you know, like I, I can't imagine what I would have looked like to him when I walked in there as a 17-year-old <laughs> who looked very different from every other kid in the town of Sackville or Amherst. I do know this, though. I, I know how Jeff looked when I walked in, which is just like a guy who was ready to give a kid an audition. He didn't look at me in an odd way. He didn't say anything that was odd. I did my audition, you know, and I think uh, all things considered, it wasn't bad. And he gave me a job. And uh, that's fantastic. This show is brought to you by Opportunities New Brunswick. Did you know that there's an organisation in New Brunswick focused solely on economic growth? The Opportunities New Brunswick team works to bring new investment to the province, helps emerging businesses, develops key sectors such as digital health and energy innovation, and also promotes an envied quality of life to bring home former New Brunswickers and welcome new ones. Great things are happening in New Brunswick. Go to ombcanada.ca for further info and click the link in the show description to read about all of the wonderful things happening in New Brunswick right now. That is beautiful. And when you mentioned that, that essentially everything is connected since, you, you've never kind of been out of work. You've literally always gone from job to job since that point. Not exactly. That's a really interesting question. So I graduated from Mount A, and to that point, I was working in radio basically as much as I wanted to. So during the school year, but also in the summertime, that station I mentioned in Moncton CKCW, which at the time was a really important radio station, and then CBC in Moncton for a couple of years. And then I went to Halifax to go to law school and I didn't have a radio job. And so 
I remember sending a resume and a tape in to all the radio stations in Halifax. There were far fewer radio stations at the time everywhere than there are today. Hmm. I think there were five radio stations in Halifax and I sent them all tapes and only one got back to me and basically sent me back a letter saying, you know, thanks, we'll put it on file, but we don't have anything right now. The others never even replied. And so in the fall of first year of law school, I remember I felt bad that I, I wasn't working in radio. I really missed it. And I thought, okay, you know, welcome to the big city. I guess this is what this is. And then at Christmas time, a friend of mine from Mount A, I heard her on one of the radio stations. And so I sent her a Christmas card and just said, hey, you know, really nice to hear a, a familiar voice. And uh, like two days after I sent the card, I get a call because I had a phone in my apartment and uh, my name was in the phone book. This is a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, and she said, hey, uh, you know, I mentioned you to my station manager and he wants to meet you. And I went in like the day after that and he hired me this fantastic job where I got to work Saturdays and Sundays. And he also paid me for 16 weeks in the summertime. And I would fill in for people who were on vacation and on the weeks when no one was on vacation, I still got paid my full salary. It was like a, a sweetheart deal. That's and amazing. it was partially on the basis of my friend from Mount A, who was from small town Prince Edward Island, mm -hmm. who um, recommended me. And I was back in radio. Wow. That's why they call us the Maritimes Mafia. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely. Yeah, that's 100%. Amazing. And so you've been at CBC now for 35 years, I believe, <laughs> yeah. um, which is incredible because, again, on TV and now here today, you do look 35. So it's <laughs> quite amazing. To, uh, uh, so 35 years. I mean, talk me through some highlights. Uh, did you ever imagine you would be there for this long? And I think one of the things I love so much about watching you and indeed hearing you speak is that your love for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is so apparent and so do you feel a kind of a huge sense of pride to work for this corporation that is so intrinsically this country? I mean, I, I, I do, of course, and it's been very good to me. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there were lots of times. I, I, first of all, I never set out to work in any one place for that long a period right. of time. <laughs> and I do find it kind of like when you said 35, I usually don't say that to people when they mm -hmm. ask, you know, I'll run into people who say, oh, I watched it since I was a kid. And I say, yeah, it's been a long time. I think maybe 30. I can't even bring myself to do the actual math <laughs> to 35, but you're absolutely right. There have been times, you know, in this business that you're very visible. And there have been times when I've been offered other jobs and I came close a couple of times to taking those. And the reason I didn't take them was just because at that time, a combination of, uh, you know, family uh, reasons, you know, and, and also professional reasons, I preferred doing what I was doing. And the other interesting thing is my job has changed so much from era to era that it doesn't feel like it hasn't been the same job. You know, I was a local right. reporter. I was a national reporter for a long time. Mm -hmm. I really liked going out in the field. You know, when you're a reporter, you get the assignment in the morning. I was a, a news reporter as opposed to like doing documentaries and that sort of thing. And then you're like full on in a very competitive environment because you're the other networks have reporters on the same story and then you deliver it at the end of the day. And I like that environment. I did that for a long time. And then I've hosted various shows including a show on CBC News Network between 2012 and 2017, where I was kind of walking around our newsroom in Vancouver. But the cool thing about that show was I used to say to people who worked on it, I said, look, you know, like 
it's just television. You know, we're not the national on this program, the program that's working on at the time. We can take <laughs> chances. And we did. And we could go from doing a story about somebody like there was a story one time i'm trying to think what province it was in it was somewhere in the maritimes might have been new brunswick but there was some sort of promotional balloon or like almost like a little uh like a hot air balloon that had gone up and then became untethered and then there were sightings all over the province we could do a story like that and then the next moment something would you know mh370 would disappear and all of a sudden we'd be thrown into that story doing live coverage for days and then on another day penn and teller would be in town and we would Absolutely. interview them on the program. And so mm-hmm. I I just loved being able to do that and turn on a dime and all the fun of doing that. And so, yeah, so it's been a job that uh, like, like even the cross country checkup stint, there's a, sh- that show has been on the air for 55 years, almost, uh, you know, actually longer than I've been at CBC. But anyway, <laughs> I remember listening to it as a kid. I remember listening to different hosts do it over the years. And then when I finally got to do it, for all the years I've been in the business, I've never done a call-in show. And uh, it's two hours straight. There's not even a break for news in the middle. And so I love the fact that even at this stage in my career, I had to learn. And really, the learning was mainly teaching myself how to do that show and, right. and to listen to myself and to kind of reflect on what's working and what's not working. How do you get a caller off the air who's been going on for too long? all those things. Anyway, so that's the beauty of this business is that not only are the days very different because stories are different, but also I've been lucky enough to do many different jobs within the CBC. Amazing. And I guess what's incredible is to be able to do things where you're still learning all of the time, no matter how many years you've been in the business. But also, I mean, what sounds fun about that is the unpredictable nature of day to day because I imagine and I guess it's obviously the same with the national in that you don't know week to week what stories are going to come up but does that ever take a toll on a person emotionally where one minute you might be dealing with a story that is the most wonderful and beautiful uplifting thing whether it be uh, like a runaway balloon but then dealing with something inherently tragic and I guess you get asked this a lot but I'm genuinely fascinated by like how do you shake that off when you go home, when you are dealing with a story that is particularly upsetting? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been lucky in terms of it not really affecting me that way. So then there are two parts to that. First of all, even though I spent many years in the field, and even though I was in lots of really interesting situations, like in the LA riots in 92, we were just on the street there, right in the middle of everything. And we had a police officer point a gun at us not knowing who we were and uh and and a gang member kind of threatening me at one point like lots of situations that actually at the time were exhilarating and then it was only you know weeks later that i thought oh okay that that was you know maybe kind of a the wrong place to be but i haven't really been exposed personally in the field to moments of great trauma so i've been lucky that way and then in terms of being on the anchor desk on stories like that, I haven't been affected by it. And I remember, for example, like one of the worst stories that we covered was the uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School shootings, right? And all those children who were killed by a gunman. I mean, just an unimaginably cruel and horrible act. And at the end of the week, and it was a grueling week, like, you know, and, and I remember, for example, 
the the musician Prince was in town that week and he was giving a concert at a small venue, hard to get tickets. And I had tickets to that. And I'm a huge fan of Prince's. And I remember one night after work thinking, I can't go see this concert. Like I'm just too burnt out just from the, the day. But at the end of the coverage of that, one of my colleagues wrote me a really nice note and said it was a very tough week for everybody and that my attitude or, or kind of approach really helped the team get through that. And I, I didn't realize until I saw his note how tough it had been on so many people. I mean, I felt it, but I didn't, it didn't weigh heavily on me. Uh, you know, you, you th- and I'm not callous. Um, And I'm not unthinking about it, but I guess I'm just, I think there's a bit of luck involved, lucky enough to be kind of resilient enough that those things, you know, I think about them, but I don't feel the burden of it. You touched on something there where the colleague had mentioned how your poise had helped others. And I guess that's one of the things that people possibly don't ask you about aspiring journalists and aspiring broadcasters. I guess they're often asking and fascinated by what's happening in front of the camera but people don't often realize how important the teamwork is behind the scenes can you tell me a bit about how you've kind of built up an understanding of that and the way in which you for example when you're on the road I imagine you get extremely close with your camera team and then similarly behind the scenes in the studio and indeed the importance of that because everyone thinks that it's all about either the research or the writing or the delivery but they don't realize that there's a whole team there where you you all need to feel extremely comfortable with each other to produce great work. Yeah, that's a really insightful question because I think even we don't think about that a lot. Uh, but I have told students that television is very much a team effort and you almost never get to choose your team right. and you are going to get along really well with people and not get along well with people. <laughs> and it's like a Rubik's Cube and it you know all the colors don't match and so with every twist of that rubik's cube you get this different combination of people and i can think of for example that news network show that i was telling you about that used to run in the evenings uh, in the like 2012 to 2017 the executive producer and the senior producer and i got along remarkably well and we never argued we never yelled at each other they are both incredibly smart the senior producer is a woman who at the time was like 29, uh, you know, early 30s in the time that she did that. The executive producer was at the time in his 40s. I was in my 50s. We got along really well. But there were a few people on that show that uh, we didn't get along well with, you know, one who was pretty abrasive. And um, but that's what you're going to have. Right. And yeah. and I don't know if in the States, I don't know if the anchor can just say, OK, off with that person. Um, but not not here. And um, and then you go to a different show and the Rubik's Cube is, in fact, even maybe the same show a couple of years later, but especially you go to a different show and you turn the Rubik's Cube again. And again, all the colors don't match. And by colors not matching, I mean, just kind of attitudes, you know, meshing and personalities meshing. And so, yeah, you got to be able to figure out how to deal with that. And, you know, just for an extra little bit of sizzle in all of this. I'm passive aggressive. Like I, I rail at things without really dealing with them openly. That's a flaw. Um, but I've, I've, you know, I've made it work for me or I've worked around it or whatever. So I'm definitely not one who can give good advice on work relationships other than to say this, I have made it work. 
you know, and it takes like a lot of effort to figure out how to work with different people. But um, it may be like, I would say, I was going to try to come up with what the biggest challenges of this job are. There are a lot of them, you know, deadline, for example, which I don't mind at all. I love deadlines, but it is very, very burdensome for some people. Um, The idea of being out there and you're putting your yourself and your product and all that sort of stuff, and you're going to get criticized. That is difficult for people. But a lot of people who are actual, like the broadcasters, as opposed to the behind the scenes people, we like that, right? You like it, right? We like yeah. being out there. And sure. if you don't like it, then I always say, like, if I didn't like that part of the job, there are lots of other jobs I could do in the newsroom and not be out there. But yeah. I would say that the teamwork part of it is is another big challenge. And I've, I've been on the road with somebody who I didn't get along with, and I'm sure they found me irritating. And uh, that's tough, right? That's tough. The difference between breakfast on the road when you're working with somebody that you love working with, as opposed to somebody, you know, the two of you just don't get along, it completely changes the nature of the day, right? It's true. And it's a fascinating thing, because ultimately, you want the product to be good, regardless, whether you're having a great time, or a terrible time with a person. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting. I mean, you just made me think of something which is going to sound weird, but um, I, it reminded me of, I interviewed a porn star once and <laughs> and, I, uh, and I asked her kind of how she would kind of essentially get into character when she would walk into a scene with a gentleman who, uh, I don't know if porn stars are called gentlemen, but, and how she would kind of, and she said what she would do is focus on the one thing that she found attractive about him and let that and accentuate that and that would become the thing that she would focus on to get into the mood for the scene and I think when you're on the road with people and indeed working closely with people every day it's like that but without the sex where you basically find the things about the person that you admire so if you're with a cameraman who you are struggling with personally it's almost that you think well this person is excellent at their job so even if the way that they crunch their carrots or the way that they scratch their leg annoys me I am going to focus on the fact that this person is amazing at pin sharp camera work so three things I would say. First of all, 35 years in the business, and this is the first time that I've shared an anecdote and somebody else has said, oh, it reminds me of this porn star I interviewed. So so good for you. That's number Thank one. You, number two, your advice for those of us who aren't porn stars is excellent. You're absolutely right. I should do that. I should have done that, which leads me to the third point, which is I just wasn't able to do that. I would just fume. I would fume right. and, and it, you know, whether it was the munching of carrots or something more substantial. Um, yeah. You know, the passive aggressive thing again, but your advice is good. I, I will try to employ that. Well, again, and again, and not mine, I guess, uh, I guess I, we, we, porn stars can teach us things in life. Who, yeah. Uh, well, there's, there's the line. There's today's best line. <laughs> Who knew? Um, and I mean, you already have an extremely busy life. How did you find time to write Pandemic Spotlight and how did it come about? And what have been the kind of the nicest reactions that you've heard to it? Yeah, well, thanks for asking about that. It's really interesting how like one of the privileges of doing this job is you get opportunities to do things that you wouldn't otherwise get to do. Right. So, right. for example, I love podcasts. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was on a story, I'm trying to remember what year it would have been, I guess, 2019, my wife actually stumbled on a story that the more I looked into it, I thought, not only do I need to do this story, but it cries out to be done in a podcast. And I was able to walk in to an office at CBC. And at the end of the meeting, 
I said, I feel like you guys have approved this podcast. And they go, yeah. And the book was kind of the same thing. The book Pandemic Spotlight, I just felt like I need to do a book about these nine infectious disease doctors. And other options would have been a long form story for The National or a podcast about them. But for some reason, I felt I should do a book and I've never written a book before. So I sent an email. I didn't, I don't know, like, how do you do a book? Um, so I, I sent an email to a publisher in British Columbia. I actually sent it to info at douglasandmcintyre.ca. <laughs> um, and I said, this is my idea. And I'd love to do this like right now. And they sent me back a reply, like within about 36 hours. And they said, yeah, we like the idea. Let's do it. Right. I'm not sure if it's always that easy, but that's what happened. <laughs> And uh, then I contacted the nine doctors and they agreed to do a couple of 45 minute interviews. And uh, as you know, as we're proving right now, it's hard to get people to stop talking and, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and uh, stay within the 45 minutes that I gave them. Um, and then I, I just started typing, you know, like every morning for an hour or so before work. And it was, I did most of the writing in May, so the days were long and beautiful, and so it felt really nice, and it was uh, easy to write. And I remember my wife, who is much more literary than I am, she said to me, and I didn't show her the book, and she didn't ask me to show her the book, but she said, you know, there'll be an editor. And I said, yeah, I know, they've already connected me to an editor. And and she kind of gently prepared me. It was actually very funny. And, and she's like, now, they're going to want to make some changes and i said yeah but you know what like i, I kind of feel like this works okay <laughs> that's fine you know anyway i sent it in to the editor and and she sent me back a note that i showed my wife where the editor said like this is great i'm not going to make any changes at all other than some uh you know words here and there and so yeah i got i got lucky it was it was a lucky process it was easy to write and i'm so happy that i i was able to put a book out here about these nine doctors because they are fantastic. And as we speak now, and we're dealing with the Omicron variant, mm. these doctors have all done, again, what they've done throughout the entire pandemic, which is every call they've gotten from all the media, they've answered. I've watched mm. their interviews, not just on CBC, but elsewhere. I haven't watched them all, but I've watched a lot of them. And uh, and their answers are evidence-based, and, mm. and uh, they're not trying to be optimistic for the sake of optimism or anything else. Uh, they're just giving honest, complete, researched answers to what's going on. So we've been very lucky. And, and compare that to the United States, right, where yeah. the pandemic story has been so politicized and yeah. so divisive, and there's such a lack of trust. And I would say that in Canada, we have really benefited from having scientists like those nine, and there have been others as well, but for me, those nine who have really framed the national conversation, at least in English Canada, and I'm sure that there are equivalents in French Canada as well, but in English yeah. Canada, um, those nine, I think, have done us all a very good service. And I think that's one of the things that people loved so much about the book and it resonated so much is that no one's ever trying to gloss over the awfulness of what we've all been through and continue to go through. But by shining a spotlight on world-class people doing amazing things 
it almost does give this kind of almost a kind of a beacon of light amidst all the darkness when you can kind of say well how great and how lucky we are to live in a country where we trust our media we trust our experts for the most part i mean certainly compared to the united states and in some cases england too where it seems to be 50 50 here it seems like it's about you know 80 plus percent of canadians trust and believe admire these great people yeah, that's exactly, I was going to say 80% as well. And I think it's reflected in our vaccination rates, right? And that, that yeah. is kind of a, but you know, you touch on something else that I really liked about these nine is how we don't spend enough time in Canada reflecting on things that are different in our country than other countries. And I think by focusing on these nine without trying to be a sociologist in this, like they're just, it's not a scientific sample. It's just nine people. But when you look at them, what do you see? You see people, in some cases, who came from very small towns, modest backgrounds. Many of them had parents who were scientists, not always, but many of them who were from other countries, but came to Canada because it was a place where they could practice their science. And that many of them went to their hometown universities. You know, that is a, a big thing about Canada that I think we don't appreciate enough that, I mean, you can tell me about the UK, but I feel like people are judged by the school, the university they go to, definitely in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Like if, you know, I can tell you where the last probably eight or nine presidents went to university and almost all of them went to Ivy League schools. Most Canadians probably couldn't tell you what universities the last five prime ministers went to. And they include well, they're all public universities. And, you know, Justin Trudeau went to McGill and then UBC. Stephen Harper went to University of Calgary. Paul Martin, I'm not sure what university he went to, but and it doesn't matter. And my wife is involved in hiring lawyers for one of the big law firms in Canada. And she's told me the universities that people have gone to that have eventually been hired by the firm and become partners. And it's, you know, big city schools, small city schools, schools that people might casually say, oh, that's not a very good school, but it's no impediment to somebody who, who's really good. So I do think sure. that book inherently tells us a lot of things about Canada. I completely agree. And again, I mean, the lack of a class system or the lack of a judgy class system is, mm -hmm. is one of the things that I mean, I just love so much. And to your point about universities, I mean, people in England aren't just judging on where people went to school, they are judging by someone's accent, actually, in a lot of cases, trying to come up with, or indeed thinking that they can identify the kind of combined household salary of that <laughs> person's parents while they were growing up. I mean, it literally is as finite as that. Okay, so like to to my uneducated ear, I, I, I your accent. No, I'm not going to guess a household income, but you sound very much like Russell Brand. Do you oh, really? <laughs> um, I, yeah, I guess not dissimilar. Um, <laughs> and I guess we've both got a combination of. I don't want to say. I guess it's a combination of London mixed in with a couple of like suburban small towns around right. London. Yeah. So, but that's. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, and yeah, here's a wonderful way with words, and I me less so, but uh, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. The um, yeah, the accent, and again in England, I mean, you know, obviously there's the regional accent thing, but the class system is essentially designed for people to judge people, and it could it works either way. Sometimes people don't want to employ someone because they sound posh and might have gone to private school, and then obviously the other way around, someone says, oh no, we can't hire them; they must have gone to a a state school so there is that yeah. thing where and again I mean that kind of 
bigotry and so forth obviously exists everywhere. But as you say, in Canada, there is definitely this feeling across the board more that anything is possible. And I don't feel immediately judged when I walk into a room in Canada, whereas in England, I do. Yeah, well, so for people who are listening to this, uh, if they recognize these names, you know, Dr. Lisa Barrett in Halifax, Dr. Isaac Bogosh from Calgary, but in Toronto, Dr. Zane Chagla, who's in Hamilton, Dr. Lenore Saxinger, uh, who grew up in Saskatchewan, but is in Edmonton, Dr. Alex Wong, who grew up in Ontario, but is in Regina. That's five of the nine. I could keep going. But my point is this, if people who are listening recognize those names and think about the voices that those people have and the way they look, can they guess what their level of household income was? No. Would they be able to tell that Lisa Barrett or Lenora Saxinger are from where they were from? Probably not. We often don't make those judgments. And the other thing I would say is that all nine of the doctors that I profiled in this, and I think this is true generally of doctors, they did not get their jobs because their dads or moms were doctors. In fact, as it turns out, none of those nine, I don't think, pretty sure that none of the nine had parents who were doctors. And uh, it's a very meritocratic system in many ways in Canada, not all, but in many. And in the case of those nine, they got where they got um, on their own. Yeah, the playing field is definitely more level here than anywhere else. And I think it stems from that idea of just the, a promotion of hard work as being the way to go. And again, I mean, I've seen it from my wife as a New Brunswicker, going to London, being successful, coming back. It's a different way of living and way of life. And I think, you know, one of the things that you highlight so beautifully in the book is the fact that the legacy of covid alongside all of the awful things and never obviously wanting to kind of gloss over that but the legacy is always going to be certainly for Canada the way that we as a country handled it you know people delivering food to the doorsteps of people who were isolating people literally driving to care homes just to wave to the residents to make them know that they're being thought about um, I feel like that and and that's what I think shined through in the book was that this idea of unlike in kind of all kind of literature and, and film and, and all art where pandemics turn people against each other in Canada for the most part it seems to have brought the country together more than ever I hope so. And I think I think there's a lot of truth to that. So yeah, that is nice. And if the book reflected that, then I appreciate that. Oh, it's beautiful. And I guess the, the final question I would love to ask is what advice would you give to a young journalist in a small town or an aspiring journalist looking to get into the business in any capacity? What's the first thing that they should know or the first step that they should take? That it is a fantastic business, you know, and I used to go to the journalism school here in Vancouver every year because a friend of mine was one of the teachers and I'd go into his class. And at the end, you know, a couple of the other instructors would be watching as well. And they would come up to me and say, boy, we don't hear many people come in here and say how much they love the business. And so I don't know why. I mean, that's unfortunate. But yeah, yeah, I love the business and the people I work with love it. It's not like I'm Pollyanna talking about this and, you know, around people who kind of look at me, go, you know, what's he on about? Mm-hmm. It's not great every day, right? And and mm-hmm. and we work with people sometimes, as I say, that we don't like. We work mm-hmm. for people sometimes who we don't like and decisions are made that we don't agree with. That's life, right? That's every organization. But on balance, it is a fantastic job. If you have at least some of the bundle of skills that you need, and no one has them all, but, you know, the curiosity, ability to do research, a self-starter, being able to deal with deadlines, being able to accept that your public profile and that people are going to say, 
incredibly nice things about you, but incredibly mean things about you too. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to, so, you know, all of those things, hopefully of that bundle of skills that you need, you have many of them, if not all of them. The big thing I would say beyond that is that the best thing to do is if you want to get into this business is to do some version wherever you are of what you hope to do. So in other words, be that per, like you don't get a job at a TV or radio station when you're 15 years old for the most part, but mm -hmm. you can find an outlet for your aspirations. So yeah. when I was a kid a million years ago, it was a school newspaper, right? right. It was a uh, pretend newscast in my parents' basement. These days with social media and, you know, the tools that every Mac has, you can make movies, you can make documentaries, you can you can shoot items, you can take videos and send them into a, a, a TV station. There are all kinds of things you can do. And so so do them. And I guess the final thing I say to people is because this business is so public, it's good to kind of look around at whichever medium you're most interested in or all the media whether, you know, print, uh, television, radio, podcast, whatever it is, mm. and start to develop a critical ear and eye for what it is you like and what you don't like. And when you get involved in it, try to be like the people who you admire. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time, I mentioned it earlier, I spent a lot of time doing Peter Jennings impersonations. And uh, every once in a while, people would catch me, like, I don't mean catch me doing it in, in the house, but even on the air early on, I remember a couple of people saying, oh, you know, you look like Peter Jennings. They meant it as a compliment. They didn't realize that I was doing, you know, a really bad impersonation of him. But I, I guess, you know, young artists must do the same thing. eh? Like in art school, they probably try to copy the masters early until they develop their own style. And sure. so, there, you know, there's some cassettes in my parents' basement in Sackville, New Brunswick, that shall never be made public of me <laughs> at those radio stations in Amherst and Moncton trying to channel those big voices that I heard in Boston and New York, you know, and I was 17, 18, 19 years old. I did wow. that not very well, but I did it, right? And then eventually, you know, you get your own voice. And there's a yeah. point at which people started saying to me that they really liked the way I sounded. And I thought, wow, like the you know, they didn't say that early on because I was too busy trying to imitate people who I didn't really sound like. So, yeah. So I'd say those things, right? Like look around and find your role models and 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 think about the people that you feel like you don't want to be the way they are. And at the end of the day, it's tough. The business is changing all the time, right? A lot of the that radio station in Amherst that hired me in 1979, I mentioned they used to hire two summer students every year. And they had on-air people from the time they signed on in the morning at 6 a.m. until they signed off at 1 a.m. Um, now that station only has, as far as I know, two on-air people total all day. The rest wow. of their program uh, comes in on a satellite. So, so you're not getting a summer job there. Um, yeah. But there are other jobs, right? There are other yeah. places you can get jobs. This business is changing all the time. And so you just need to find the right outlook. Amazing advice. Amazing. And um, I know I, I promised I would, that was the last question and I've kept you for way over at the time that I said. Uh, uh, I've, I've been doing most of the talking, uh, so no, you have well, no reason to apologize. Thank you. I've waited a long time to, uh, to, to, to meet you, as I say, been a fan for a long time. Um, so again, I'd love to ask a personal question, if I may. Because you can ask anything I, you want. 
Beautiful. I am a romantic. I would love to end with a love story. So I would love to uh, hear about how you and your wife met. Well, and the beautiful thing about that question is that it actually connects to everything we're talking about. I was working at CHNS in Halifax, the radio station where that friend of mine got me the job when I was in partway through the year in first year law school. And I came back one night. So I worked Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And so on a Sunday night, I was in the library at the law school in Halifax. And these two attractive uh, women came up to me in the library. And they said, are you the guy uh, who's just on the radio station? And I said, yeah, you know, feeling pretty good about myself. And they said, can we get an autograph? And are, are you familiar with the Charlie Brown uh, cartoons, you know? Yes, yes. And, right, and yeah. so one of the scenes is Lucy holding out, I think it's Lucy, the, the football for somebody to kick, uh, maybe Charlie Brown. And when he gets ready to kick it, she pulls it away every time, you know, mm-hmm. and I've lived most of my life assuming that people are going to pull the football away from me. So when these two attractive classmates mm-hmm. said to me, can we have an autograph? I instantly thought, no, no, this is... <laughs> This is like some of my friends are behind this. This is obviously a practical joke. There's no way in the world I'm going to sign this, this autograph. <laughs> and so when in doubt, you know, turn kind of uh, cold. Right. <laughs> Actually, that's not good advice, but that's what I did. And I said, no, I'm not going to sign. So, so as you can tell, one of those two women was the woman who eventually would become my wife. It took months to repair the uh, how badly that first uh, uh, encounter went and and about a year later uh, after like dogged attempts by me to get her attention uh we started dating in uh, second year law school and have been together ever since uh and uh basically that was 1985 and wow. we have been a couple uh, since then. So a uh, rocky start. Well, you know, that uh, <laughs> I squandered an opportunity that radio gave me, but I finally overcame it. Well, it's, it's an interesting one, though, because, again, I mean, actually, by being humble and shy and insecure, which are all beautiful traits, you came across like an egomaniac. So it was like the two, <laughs> it was like the two <laughs> complete opposites of reality. Um, and let's face it, I mean, had... <laughs> Had she have liked the egomaniac side, then that wouldn't have been a good fit. So actually, yeah. it's, it's a good thing that you had that rocky start. That's yeah, very, very funny, very insightful, but funny analysis on your part. Well done. <laughs> thank you. Well, and I can't thank you enough for your time, insights, and um, honestly, I mean, watching you um, every, every week is an inspiration, but this has been a truly special moment to finally meet properly. So thank you. Well, you're very generous. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. This show is brought to you by Opportunities New Brunswick. New Brunswick has set itself the goal of growing its population to one million people in a generation. Opportunities New Brunswick's immigration team are the boots on the ground who are making that happen. From targeting skilled individuals in key sectors to make their move, to attracting and retaining international students, not to mention promoting this great province of ours around the world. OMB looks forward to reaching that goal and then going beyond. Great things are happening in New Brunswick. Go to ombcanada.ca for further info and click the link in the show description to read about all of the exciting things happening in New Brunswick right now.
Be sure to follow Ian on Twitter at Ian Hanamansing and Instagram Ian.Hanamansing and purchase his book, Pandemic Spotlight, from all good bookstores. Further details can be found on the edit website, maritimeedit.com, and I will see you next season. This has been a Podstarter production. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.